0: talking to us about Shiloh uh,
1: following in the footsteps of Henry Morton Stanley. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to the uh, the Civil War Roundtable. Just like the Ohio State University. We We have a brand we need to protect. (laughs) If we we don't say it right, the PR department will call us and and bother us about, oh, put an R on that. Um, But thank you very much. It is uh, a real pleasure to be back with the Civil War Roundtable uh, for the 780... 778th meeting. I was not there for the first one. (laughs) But I... I have heard the story, it occurred in my place of employment, uh, Abraham Lincoln Bookshop, and one of the original founders of the uh, Civil War Roundtable, Ralph Newman, uh, also a member for years and years. He must have been president two or three times. I don't know. Um, and uh, Ralph had a uh, a regular secondhand bookshop down in the loop called Home of Books. Back in the 30s, Ralph Newman was a fascinating guy. We could do an entire show, entire program about him. Uh, and uh, But he had this bookshop, minor league ball player and a merchant marine and all these things. And he had this bookshop. Right across from Chicago, Chicago Daily News. So, just about every day or so, a couple of journalists, Lloyd Lewis and Carl Sandburg, would wander on over and uh, sit around and talk about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War with uh, Ralph Newman and maybe just <laughs> while away in the afternoon as journalists are known to do. Um, and uh, at some point, 1938, Sandberg says to Newman, you know, Newman, you should sell all of these books and only sell books about Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War.
0: <laughs>
1: Newman said, sounds like a good idea to me. <laughs> And he sold all of his books, and he opened the Abraham Lincoln bookshop, and they, that, that round claw foot table that we still have in the uh, in the bookshop, that's the round table, and they formed this group. Now, one important thing to know about the round table, if you want to come and see it as a relic, um, you can. We still have it. Uh, but it is very important. They I don't think they ever met at the round table. Uh, as far as I know from Dan Weinberg, my boss, and another one of the old-timers, uh, just as soon as they figured that they would actually meet somewhere and talk about the Civil War, it was off to a bar. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm not sure any actual meetings happened at the Round Table, but the idea of a Civil War round Table. <laughs> came from Abraham Lincoln Bookshop around our round table back somewhere around 1938 or so. No one no one uh, remembered. Um, but again, that makes it all the more enjoyable for me to be back to the Civil War round table here in Chicago to talk about something that is of great interest to me. And I do need to, uh, uh, part of this, of this program involves us going through, actually reading through the writings of Henry Morton Stanley. So the sooner we get to that, the better. But I do want to contextualize our program a little bit. Part of that context is that last year I was here and I gave a program called Shiloh in the Footsteps of Ambrose Bierce. And there's a story behind that, and it goes to Loyola University of Chicago and my study with Professor Ted Karamansky. Um, I was studying there at Loyola, and I decided I wanted to do, to do an internship. I needed to do an internship as a public history student at Loyola. And so I contacted uh, Shiloh National Military Park and I said, I want to come down this summer and I want to do uh, a- an internship. And, and Stacy Allen, the, the chief ranger there, said, No.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: See, a lot of people here know Stacy. <laughs> uh, to which I said, I'm, I'm going to be there on this day. So I'm either going to spend the summer sleeping in the park or come up with something. Um, and so Stacy went, yeah. and then yes. <laughs> and uh, so, but the internship that we decided upon, I wanted to do something that would be useful for the park, not just to go down there and study and then write a report for Ted. I wanted to do something that the park could use, and so I did work with Stacy on that. And Stacy said, "Well, you have this uh, this idea." for interpretive hikes across the battlefield with primary source writing. So you've got the veteran that wrote the story about the battle, and can you create a a hike for our visitors where they can go, here's where this happened, and then you read it, and then you move to another place, and here's where this happened. So that when you read the primary source, you're in the place at the time. And I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. And I had the idea for Ambrose Bierce already, uh, and that, but we decided that we would need a Union and Confederate. We would do two hikes. One would be a Union soldier, the other would be a Confederate soldier. One would be, would take uh, visitors across the battlefield on places that were important to the first day of battle, April 6th, 1862, and another would Feature the second day, April seventh, eighteen sixty-two, and then finally, they w- each tour would cover different parts of the battlefield, so that if you did both of them, you wouldn't be in the same places, you know, o- over and over again. And it turns out, dumb luck, <laughs> two of the greatest writers of the nineteenth century fought in the ranks at Shiloh. One was a Union soldier the other Confederate soldier. One wrote a compelling history of the first day of the battle, the other a compelling history of the second day of the battle. And then one traced the center and western half of the park while the other was on the eastern side of the park. And one being Confederate and the other being Union, one of them was heading north and the other was heading south. Two. Such perfect documents could not have fallen in my lap. Therefore, it was a great joy in the summer of 2004 to create these two hikes for the battlefield. Ambrose Shiloh in the footsteps of Ambrose Bierce, a Union soldier fighting on the second day of the battle, on the east side of the battlefield, and today Shiloh in the footsteps of Henry Morton Stanley, a Confederate soldier fighting on the center and the, and the west side of the battlefield on the first day of the battle, and so so that means what I did last year is very much part and parcel of what you're about to hear today. It is a primary source battlefield program that takes you across the battlefield, designed to be done on the site. Of course, we're in a room tonight, so I have a a slideshow with some pictures of the battlefield, and I'll I'll tell you about the the sites when we see them. Uh, It's second best, but it's still pretty good. And so, But the point of both of these programs is to take me out of the story as much as possible. To take the historian out of the story as much as possible. I'm here only to provide context, or if it were a book, footnotes. What we're here to do to, tonight is to listen to the story of Henry Morton Stanley, Confederate soldier private at the Battle of Shiloh and rather than taking quotes from his material we're going to listen to it all we're going to listen to him tell the story as he told it he told it many years later this was after uh, after all the rest of his adventures he was in the American Civil War and he was a journalist and he went to Africa and did something I don't know now (laughs) Uh, but he got lost somebody got lost um, although last night one of the folks in, in Milwaukee said well you know the real story is it was Livingston that found Stanley <laughs> Stanley was lost and Livingston came and, and rescued him um, I, I don't I don't know that I didn't read that part of the story I'm interested in Shiloh uh,
0: <laughs>
1: but the uh, the point is with these two programs Ambrose Beers last year Stanley this year let's listen to the veteran. Let's listen to the veteran talk about his experience. Now, most Civil War soldiers wrote about what mattered to them most, especially in their diaries, which would mean if I took any randomly chosen Union or Confederate veteran, it would say, uh, we had hardtack for breakfast, and it rained at night. There was a battle. Thank you very much. I'm off to because that's really what it. So we needed to find a couple of guys that could write, and of course these are two of the finest writers of the 19th century. Of course, Ambrose Bierce, as we as we uh, uh, learned a year ago, was uh, uh, if uh, not counting Poe, probably one of the with Poe, one of the first two uh, originators of the genre of horror writing uh, and one of the greatest. Nobody has done psychological terror better than Ambrose Bierce um, unless you take Poe into consideration. And then Stanley, a journalist with a Victorian purple pen and a beautiful ability to describe what he's looking at and more importantly, and this is different from Bierce last year, last year Bierce painted Pictures of the battlefield. Henry Morton Stanley is going to show us what happens in his mind. And it's going to happen. show us what happens in his soul. He is going to have, We are going to find out a lot about his experience in the Battle of Shiloh. But we're going to find out even more about what happens to a 20-year-old kid after his first day of combat. And that is may be the most interesting thing that Stanley will teach us tonight. So let's dive into the uh, to the program itself. No, I have one other thing. I do have a job, and I like to make money, and so. Abraham Lincoln Bookshop has this enterprise, Author's Voice. We interview authors and we show the program, stream it live on the internet. You can watch it on your phone, you can watch it on your tablet. If you like the book we're talking about, you can order it. The author signs it for you, we ship it out to you, you get it in your home. Author's Voice, connecting authors to the world. And the next program we have on January 25th, David Blight, the great David Blight from Yale University, will be here to discuss Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Uh, So you can either watch the show and order a signed copy. We will have Blight sign a whole stack of books before he leaves. So if you want to come into Abraham Lincoln Bookshop anytime in February, we will have signed copies of Frederick Douglass, um, Prophet of Freedom. So much for the ad. The Welsh birth certificate reads John Rowland, bastard. (laughs) And by the time the gentleman we see pictured there died in 1904, Uh, Many people would have thought that that birth certificate was accurate all the way through (laughs) his lifetime. Henry Morton Stanley spent a lifetime making a lot of enemies. He also made a lot of friends. But the reason he led such a controversial life had everything to do with this was a guy who had adventures. This was a guy who, who, who lived life to the fullest and went to the farthest reaches of the world that he could find every time he had a chance to. And indeed, uh, whether the people that knew him liked him or not, uh, everyone had to admit by the time he wrote his memoirs and the time he died that this was possibly the most interesting fellow of the 19th century. A journalist, an explorer, an adventurer, and many many other things, and none of the great things he, he is famous for would have been notable had he not been a first-rate writer. He knew how to tell a story. And so, we're going to tell a little bit of the story of, of Henry Morton Stanley. Of course, he was, he was born John Rowlands, bastard in Wales. Uh, and uh, spent most of his childhood in a workhouse. Uh, at about the age of fifteen, he he escaped from the workhouse. Although I've later learned that workhouses kicked you out at fifteen, but if if you read the the autobiography, he escaped. <laughs> uh, but certainly, uh, uh, here here is an orphan, a bastard child, and an orphan escaped from a Welsh workhouse at 15, got onto a merchant ship. The first one he could get onto was hired, went into the Atlantic, had a horrible, horrible adventure with these, with these terrible, terrible uh, captains and sailors and all the rest, finally made landing in New Orleans and escaped from the ship and landed at the age of, uh, I don't know if the age of 20 exactly, but finally landed on the docks of New Orleans, Louisiana. Not New York, New Orleans. That will mean a lot when it comes time to join the Civil War. Uh, Young John Rollins found himself a situation there in New Orleans as a clerk, and I believe it was in a Cotton Factors, Uh, I I should have looked that up because, uh, but I forgot to, but I think it was a clerk at a Cotton Factor there in New Orleans, and there after several years of, uh, two or three years of good work, he met an Arkansas planter. A plantation owner came down from Arkansas to sell his, his cotton, as he did every year, Henry Hope Stanley uh, from, the Arcan- from Arkansas uh, near Darnell and the Arkansas River. And, uh, and Henry Hope Stanley took a shine to John Rollins, hired him, and John Rollins found himself in, suddenly, John Rollins' bastard found himself in the plantation economy. In the world of upper class uh, slave owning plantation aristocracy in Arkansas. And in Henry Hope Stanley, John Rollins found the first and only father figure that he would ever know in his life, someone he really looked up to, somebody that he wanted to emulate, someone that he wanted to be like. And he took the name Henry Morton Stanley, and that's the name. John Rollins would use for the rest of his life, Henry Morton Stanley. Uh, He always always, uh, claimed that he was uh, um, adopted by Henry Hope Stanley. Um, A uh, careful search of public records does not find any adoption paperwork uh, of Henry Hope Stanley adopting uh, Henry Morton Stanley. But nevertheless, Simply taking on the new name should tell us all we need to know about the relationship between these two men. Uh, finally, this kid, this poor kid, this poor Dickensian urchin from Wales had found a father figure, and it was somebody who, whose influence would, would influence him for the rest of his life. So Henry Morton Stanley, a couple of years later, Come 1861, is living on a plantation in, on the Arkansas River in Arkansas, and the time for the war came. The war came. At first, Henry Morton Stanley did feel the way that we probably would imagine he would feel, this is not my fight. Uh, I've recently come here from another country, I'm just learning the politics, uh, he may have been ambivalent about slavery, although he benefited from it, like everyone else in the economy, Um, but but when the first toxins of war started to beat Henry Morton Stanley, let the other kids, let those other upper class, upper crust plantation kids from Arkansas go into the army, he was not going to have any of that, until something happened, that made him uh, decide to join the army. And it's something that has always been a huge influence on a lot of young men who chose to join the army in the time of war. Uh, He was there in the house and and a package arrived for him and he opened it up and within he found a petticoat. So... Even though Henry Morton Stanley had no political bone in this war, even though he didn't want to go to the war, even though all of the reason in his mind told him that he didn't need to be a Confederate soldier, manhood intervened. Am I a man? Because some woman doesn't think I am. (laughs) So, Henry Morton Stanley went right down and joined the Dixie Grays, a company that later became uh, part of the Confederate Army. Captain S.G. Smith's uh, company became Company E of the 6th Arkansas Infantry. And off to Little Rock it was. Henry Morton Stanley with a hundred other young fellows just like him uh, in the Dixie Grays. They became Company E of the 6th Arkansas. um, And off, To war they went. To very quickly take them to Shiloh, the first place they went was uh, Kentucky, Bowling Bowling Green, Kentucky, and they helped form that thin, thin crust of Confederate defense in Kentucky until General U.S. Grant took his army up the Tennessee River, up the Cumberland River, captured Fort Henry, captured Fort Donaldson in February of 1862, then suddenly the Dixie Grays and Henry Morton Stanley were shouldering their muskets and walking out of Kentucky, walking all the way back to Nashville, walking through the burning remains of Nashville, walking through Murfreesboro, trudging through Pulaski, trudging across the Cumberland Plateau till they finally got to Decatur. I think they finally got a train ride over to Corinth, Mississippi, but their first experience in warfare was to retreat several hundred miles uh, out of Kentucky and all the way through Tennessee found himself in Corinth, Mississippi, where on the second of April, eighteen sixty-two, the Dixie Greys and the Sixth Wisconsin, Sixth,
0: <laughs>
1: sorry, um, <laughs> sorry, Doug Dahman, um, and the Sixth Arkansas uh, began to uh, mar- got their orders to march upon. General Grant's army encamped at Pittsburgh Landing, Mississippi, Tennessee, 22 miles away to destroy that army of General Grant that had captured Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson and sent them on the retreat. Two days march, three days march, through the rain and the mud, brought Henry Morton Stanley, Private Stanley, and the rest of the 6th Arkansas to Shiloh. The evening of April 5th, 1862, bivouacking in the rain at Shiloh. Now I'm going to jump off the mic for a minute here. Um, I don't want to do too much map work in this because it's, this is not about maps, it's about literature. But I'm going to show you a little bit of what we're talking about cartographically. Now, this is a map that I'm sure from your point of view looks a lot like a spaghetti bowl. <laughs> Uh, and if th- I have no other reason for showing it, it's for the label here, Amer- American Battlefield Trust. They very kindly make this available to historians that they can use it. And even if you can't see the uh, the map, I definitely want you to donate money to the American Battlefield Trust to save our battlefields. They do such great work. Um, but this is the Shiloh battlefield. As for those of you who are, who are a little familiar with it, or, or maybe not familiar with it? North, south, east, west. Here goes the Tennessee River, straight north. Here comes Owl Creek and Snake Creek. Here's the Union camps, General Grant's camps. And here on the southwestern side, the Confederates make their attack, the surprise attack on the morning of April 6th. Now what you can't see right now is the brigade of Colonel Bob Shaver. Shaver. Bob Shaver of Arkansas. It's right here, part of General William Joseph Hardee's Corps. And early in the morning at dawn on April 6th, they attack straight up the middle, straight into these woods, and straight into the camp of General Benjamin Prentiss, the 6th Division of General Grant's Army. Uh, never mind the order of battle. All we really need to say. these Arkansans attack right into the middle of the Union camp and the Union soldiers are there to defend their camps. The job of the Confederates is to destroy this Union army or die trying and the job of the Union army is to not die. So it created a pretty intense situation. And that is the situation into which Private Stanley and the Dixie Grays marched. Now, here's a little bit of a, of a close up that if you saw the middle of that, things marked, might make a little more sense. But here comes Shaver. And Shaver's brigade has four regiments. And there's the 6th Arkansas, the second one from the right. And there's Prentice, the name of the camp they're attacking, and they come straight up the middle. You see with the rest of that spaghetti bowl, it means that a lot of different brigades, Confederate brigades, had to attack that position to finally take it over. And then on they go, fighting all the way through the camps uh, to the north. Okay, that's all the map work we're going to do. But I hope it just sort of puts you on the landscape that that is where um, uh, Private Stanley and his comrades are going to do their fighting. Most of the rest of what we're going to do is going to involve photographs of your Shiloh National Military Park. Here we see C Field, or Say Field, depending on how you pronounce it. It's on the far south side of the battlefield. And at dawn, at just about dawn, on April 6th, 1862, Private Stanley would have been on the far edge of that field, facing blues that were in the position of this tablet in the foreground, which brings us to our, the beginning of our program. And I will let Private Stanley take it from here. At four o'clock in the morning we rose from our damp bivouac, and after a hasty refreshment were formed into line. We stood in rank for half an hour or so with the military dispositions were being completed all around us along a three-mile front. Day broke with every promise of a fine day. Next to me, on my right, was a boy of 17, Henry Parker. I remember it because while we stood at ease, he drew my attention to some violets at his feet and said, it would be a good idea to put a few of these in my cap. Perhaps the Yanks won't shoot at me if they see I am wearing such flowers for they're a sign of peace. Capital, I said, I will do the same. So we plucked and arranged violets in our caps. The men in the ranks laughed at our proceedings. We loaded our muskets and arranged our cartridge pouches ready for use. Our weapons were obsolete flintlocks, and the ammunition was rolled in a paper cartridge, which contained powder, a round ball, and three buckshot. When we loaded, we had to tear the paper with our teeth, empty a little bit of powder into the pan, lock it, empty the rest of the powder into the barrel, press the paper and the ball down with the muzzle, ram it home, then we were ready to fire. Then the orderly sergeant called out the roll, and we knew that the Dixie Grays were present to a man. A young aide galloped along our front, gave some instructions to the brigadier, who confided the same to his colonels, and presently we swayed forward in line, with shouldered arms. Newton Story. Big. Broad. Straight bore our company banner of gay silk at which the ladies of the neighborhood had labored. As we tramped solemnly and silently through the thin forest and over its grass, I noticed that the sun was not far from appearing, that our regiment was keeping its formation admirably, and that the woods would have been a grand place for a picnic. And I thought it strange that a Sunday should have been chosen to disturb the holy calm of these woods. Before we had gone five hundred paces, our serenity was disturbed by some desultory firing in the front. There they are, we whispered to each other. Stand by, gentlemen, said our captain, S.G. Smith. Our steps became unconsciously brisker, and alertness was noticeable in everyone. The firing continued at intervals, deliberate and scattered as at target practice. We drew nearer to the firing, and soon a sharper rattling of musketry was heard. That is the enemy waking up, we said. Within a few minutes... There was another explosive burst of musketry and the air was pierced by many bullets which hummed and pinged sharply in our ears, pattered through the treetops and brought twigs and leaves down upon us. Those are bullets, Henry whispered with awe. Our walk brings us to a Tablet, simply a tablet showing Shaver's Brigade. It's in the middle of the woods, so if there were any more to see, you still wouldn't see it. Uh, it's, it's, the next stop is in the middle of the woods. At 200 yards further, a dreadful roar of musketry broke out from a regiment adjoining ours. It was followed by another further off, and the sound had scarcely died away when regiment after regiment blazed away and made a continuous roll of sound. We are in for it now, said Henry. But as yet, we had seen nothing, though our ears were tingling with the animated volleys. Forward, gentlemen, make ready, urged Captain Smith. We surged forward, at the first time marring the alignment. We trampled recklessly over the grass and the young sprouts. Beams of sunlight stole athwart our course. The sun was up above the horizon. Just then we overtook our skirmishers who had been engaged in scouting the front. We passed beyond them. Nothing now lay between us and the enemy. There they are was no sooner uttered than we cracked into them with leveled muskets. Aim low, men, commanded Captain Smith. I tried hard to see some living thing to shoot at, for it appeared absurd to be blazing away at the shadows. But still advancing, firing as we moved, I at last saw a row of little globes of pearly smoke streaked with crimson, breaking out with sportive quickness from a long line of bluey figures in the front. and. Simultaneously, there broke upon our ears an appalling crash of sound. The series of fusillades following one another with startling suddenness, which suggested a mountain upheaved with huge rocks tumbling and thundering down a slope and the echoes rumbling and receding through space. Again and again, these loud and quick explosions were repeated, seemingly with increased violence, until they rose to the highest pitch of fury in an unbroken continuity. All the world seemed involved in one tremendous ruin. Our next shop stop shows us the same battle site except the set back a little bit. We see that there is the road going up there and the woods. This is the attack, the first attack upon General Prentice's Union division. This was how the conflict was ushered in, as it affected me. I looked around to see the effect on others and, it was, and I was glad to notice that each was possessed of his own thoughts. All were pale, solemn, and absorbed. But beyond that, it was impossible for me to discover what they thought, uh, what they thought of, or, or, or if they felt they would gladly prefer to be elsewhere, though the law of the inevitable kept them in line and moving toward their destiny. It might be mentioned, however, that at no time were we more instinctively inclined. To obey the voice of command. We had no individuality at this moment, but all motions and thoughts were surrendered to the unseen influence which directed our movements. Probably few bothered their minds with questionings as to the issue of themselves. That properly belongs to other moments, to the night, to the interval between waking and sleeping to the first moments of dawn. Not when every nerve is tense and the spirit is at its highest pitch of action. Though our senses were acute, we plied our arms, loaded and fired with such nervous haste as though it depended on each of us how soon this fiendish uproar would be hushed. My, ter- my nerves tingled, my pulse Beat a double quick, my heart throbbed loudly and almost painfully. But amid all the excitement, my thoughts took all sound and sight and self into their view. I listened to the battle raging away on the flanks, to the thunder in front, to the various sounds made by the leaden storm. I was angry at my rear rank because he made my eyes smart with the powder of his musket, and I felt like cuffing him for deadening my ears. I knew how Captain Smith and Lieutenant Mason looked, how bravely the Dixie Gray's banner ruffled over Newton Story's head, and that all hands were behaving as though they knew how long this would last. Back to myself my thoughts came, and with the whirring bullet, they fled to the blue-bloused ranks afront. front. Through the lurid haze, the contours of their pink faces could not be seen, but the gappy and sensitive line revealed their mood clearly. We continued advancing, step by step, loading and firing as we went, to every step forward, They took a backward move, loading and firing as they withdrew. 20,000 muskets were being fired at this stage, but though accuracy of aim was impossible, many bullets found their destined billets on both sides. After a steady exchange of musketry, which lasted some time, we heard the order, Six bayonets on the double quick! In tones that thrilled us, there was a simultaneous bound forward, each soul doing his best for the emergency. The Federals appeared inclined to wait for us, but at this juncture, our men raised a yell. Thousands responded to it and burst into the wildest yelling it has ever been my lot to hear. It drove all sanity and order from among us. It served the double purpose of relieving pent-up feelings and transmitting encouragement along the attacking line. I rejoiced in the shouting like the rest. It reminded me that there were about 400 companies, just like the Dixie Grays, who shared our feelings. Most of us, engrossed in the musket work, had forgotten that fact, but wave after wave of human voices, louder than all the other battle sounds together, penetrated to every sense and stimulated our energies to the utmost. They fly was echoed from lip to lip. It accelerated our pace and filled us with a noble rage. Then it deluged us with rapture and transfigured each Southerner into an exulting victor. At such a moment, nothing could have halted us. Those savage yells and the sight of thousands of racing figures coming towards them discomforted the bluecoats. And when we arrived upon the place where they had stood, they had vanished. Then we caught sight of their beautiful array of tents, before which they had made their stand. The half-dressed dead and wounded showed us what a surprise our attack had been. We drew up to the enemy's camp, panting and breathing hard. Some precious minutes were lost, thus recovering our breaths, indulging our curiosity, and reforming our line. Military equipment, uniform coats, half-packed knapsacks, bedding, and a new and superior quality littered, littered the company's streets. Private Stanley, the 6th Arkansas, Shaver's Brigade, had overcome the first line of Union, uh, union resistance. General Prentiss's camp, they fell out They stopped the fighting. They fell out for about 45 minutes before their officers could finally get them back into line. They fell to looting the camps, eating the Yankees breakfast, drinking their whiskey. Uh, But finally, after about 45 minutes, their officers got back into line and another attack 800 yards further. another line of camps. And that brings us to where we are right here. This is a field on the Shiloh Military Park called Review Field. And right across that field, about 400 yards, a tiny little flash speck of silver that is a tablet. And that is a tablet toward which our brigade attacks during the following passage. Meantime, a series of camps lay behind the first ray of tents. The resistance we had met enabled the brigades in the rear to advance of the advance camp to recover from the shock of the surprise, but our delay had been long enough to give them time to form a proper line of battle. I had a momentary impression that the capture of the first camp, the battle was well nigh over. But in fact, It was only a brief prologue to a long and exhaustive series of struggles which took place that day. Continuing our advance, we came in view of the tops of another mass of white tents, and almost at the same time were met by a furious storm of bullets poured upon us from a long line of bluecoats whose attitudes of assurance proved to us that we should have tough work here. But we were so much heartened by our first success that would have required a good deal to have halted our advance for long. Their opportunity for making a full impression upon us came with terrific suddenness. The world seemed bursting into fragments. Cannon and musket, shell and bullet lent their several intensities to the distracting roar. I likened the cannon with their deep bass to the roaring of a great herd of lions, the ripping, cracking musketry to the incessant yapping of terriers, and the windy whisk of shells and the zipping of mini-bullets to the swoop of eagles and the buzz of angry wasps. All the opposing armies of gray and blue fiercely blazed at each other. After being exposed for a few minutes to this fearful downpour, we heard the order, Lie down, men! Lie down! And continue firing! Before me was a prostrate tree, about 15 inches in diameter, with a narrow strip of light between it and the ground. Behind this shelter, a dozen of us flung ourselves. The security security it appeared to offer restored to me my individuality. We could fight and think and observe better than out in the open, but it was a terrible period. How the cannon bellowed and the shells plunged and bounded and flew with screeching hisses over us. Their sharp rending explosions and hurtling fragments made us shrink and cower despite our utmost efforts to be cool and collected. I marveled as I heard the unremitting patter, snip, thud, and hum of the bullets, how anyone could live under this reigning death. I could hear the balls beating a merciless tattoo on the outer side of the log, pinging vivaciously as they flew off at a tangent from it and thudding into something or other at a rate of a hundred a second. One here and there found its way under the log and buried itself into a comrade's body. One man raised his chest as if to yawn and jostled me. I turned to him and saw that a bullet had had gored his face and penetrated into his chest. Another ball struck a man a deadly rap on top of the head, and he turned on his back and showed his ghastly white face to the sky. It is getting too warm, boys, cried a soldier, and he uttered a vehement curse upon keeping soldiers hugging the ground until every ounce of courage was chilled. He lifted his head a little too high, and a bullet skimmed over the top of the log and hit him fairly in the center of the forehead, and he fell heavily on his face. The officers, with one voice, ordered the charge, and cries of, forward, forward, raised us with a spring to our feet and changed the complexion of our feelings. The pulse of action beat feverishly once more, and though overhead was crowded with peril, we were unable to give it as much attention as when we lay stretched out on the ground. Just as we bent our bodies for the onset, a boy's voice rang out. Oh, stop! Please, stop a bit! I have been hurt and can't move. I turned to look and saw Henry Parker standing on one leg and dolefully regarding his smashed foot. In another second, we were striding impetuously toward the enemy, vigorously plying our muskets, stopping only to prime the pan and ram down a load, when with a spring or two we would fetch up to the front, aim and fire. Our progress was not so continuously rapid as we desired, for the blues were obdurate. At this moment, we were gladdest at the sight of a battery galloping to our assistance. It was time for the nerve-shaking cannon to speak. After two rounds of shell and canister, we felt the pressure on us slightly relaxed, but we were still somewhat sluggish in our disposition, though the officers' voices rang out imperiously. Newton's story, at this juncture, strode forward rapidly with the Dixie's banner until he was quite 60 yards ahead of the foremost. Finding himself alone, he halted and, turning to us smiling, said, Why don't you come on, boys? You see there's no danger. His smile and words acted on us like magic. We raised the yell, and sprang lightly and hopefully towards him. Let's give them hell, boys, said one. Plug them, plumb center, every time. It was all very encouraging, for the yelling and shouting were taken up by thousands. Forward, forward, don't give them any breathing time, was cried. We instinctively obeyed, and soon came in clear view of the bluecoats, who were scornfully unconcerned at first, But seeing the leaping tide of men coming at a tremendous pace, their front dissolved and they fled in double-quick retreat. Again, we felt the glorious joy of heroes. We were no longer an army of soldiers, but so many schoolboys racing in which the length of legs and wind and condition tell. We gained the second line of camps and continued to rush through them and clean beyond. It was now about 10 o'clock. My physical powers were quite exhausted, and to add to my discomfort, something struck me on the belt clasp and tumbled me headlong to the ground. Here we have crossed the field in our last slide, and there is our tablet, the Confederates of Shaver's Brigade attacking across review field and into the next woodlot, where again they fought another Union Brigade. Private Stanley was not part of that fight. I could not have been many minutes prostrated before I recovered from the shock of the blow in the fall to find my belt clasp deeply dented and cracked. My company was not in sight. I was grateful for the rest and crawled feebly to a tree, and plunging my hand into my haversack ate ravenously. Within half an hour, feeling renovated, I struck north in the direction that the regiments had taken, over ground strewn with bodies and the debris of war. The desperate character of the day's battle was now brought home to my mind in all of its awful reality. While in the tumultuous advance, it was only at brief intervals that I was conscious of wounds being given and received, but now the ghastly relics appalled every sense. I felt curious as to who the fallen greys were, and moved to one stretched straight out. It was the body of a stout English sergeant of a neighboring company. At the crossing of the Arkansas River, this plump, ruddy-faced man had been conspicuous by his complexion, his jovial features, and his good humor, and we all had nicknamed him John Bull. He was now lifeless, and lay with his eyes wide open regarding the scorching sun, and the musketry that crackled incessantly along the front. Close by him was a young lieutenant who, judging by the new gloss on his uniform, must have been some father's darling. A clean bullet hole through the center of his forehead had instantly ended his career. A little further, there were some twenty bodies, lying in various postures, each by its own pool of viscous blood, which emitted a peculiar scent, which was new to me at that time. Beyond these, a still larger group lay, body overlying body, knees crooked, arms erect or wide-stretched and rigid. The company opposed to them must have shot straight. Other details of that ghastly trail formed a mass of horrors that will always be remembered at the mention of Shiloh. I can never forget the impression those wide-open, dead eyes made upon me. Each seemed to be staring out of its socket with a look similar to the fixed, wondering gaze of an infant. My surprise was, was that the form that we made so much of, that nothing was too good for, should now be mutilated, hacked, and outraged. And that life, hitherto guarded as a sacred thing and protected by the Constitution, law, ministers of justice, police, should all of a sudden be given up to death. I cannot forget that half-mile square of woodland, lighted brightly by the sun and littered by the forms of about a thousand dead and wounded men and horses. For it was the first field of glory I had seen, and the first time that glory sickened me with its repulsive aspect, and made me suspect that it was all a glittering lie. My thoughts reverted to a time when these festering bodies were idolized objects of their mother's passionate love. Their fathers, standing by, half fearing to touch the fragile little things, and the wings of civil law outspread to protect parents and children in their family love, their coming and going followed with pride and praise, and the blessing of the Almighty overshadowing all. Then, as they were nearing manhood, through some strange warp of society, men in authority summoned them from school and shop and field and farm to meet in the woods on a Sunday morning for mutual butchery with the deadliest instruments ever invented. Civil law, religion, and morality complacently standing aside while 90,000 young men who had been preached and moralized to for years were let loose to engage in a carnival of slaughter only yesterday they pro- only yesterday they professed to shudder at the word murder today they lusted to kill and were hounded on to the work of destruction by their pastors, elders, mothers, sisters. Oh, for once I was beginning to know the real truth. Man was born for slaughter. All the pains taken to soothe his savage heart were unavailing. Holy words and heavenly hopes had no lasting effect on his bestial nature. For when once provoked, how swiftly he flung aside the sweet hope of heaven and the dread of hell, with which he amused himself at times of ease. As I moved, horror-stricken, through the fearful shambles, I was unable to resist the belief that my education had been in abstract things, which had no relation to our animal existence. For, if human life was so disparaged, what has it to do with such high subjects as God, heaven, and immortality? And to think how devotional men and women pretended to be on a Sunday. Oh, cunning, cruel man! He knew that the sum of all real knowledge and effort was to know how to kill and mangle his brothers, as we were doing today. Reflecting on my own emotions, I wondered if other youths would feel that they had been deluded, like myself, with man's fine polemics and names of things which vanished with reality. A multitude of angry thoughts surged through me, which I cannot describe in detail, but they amounted to this, that a cruel deception had been practiced on my blank ignorance, that my imagination and feeling had been darkened, and that man was a creature from which I recoiled in terror and pity. He was certainly terrible and hard, but he was no more to me now than a two-legged beast. He was cunning beyond finding out, but his morality was only a mask for his wolfish heart. Thus, scoffing and railing at my infatuation for moral excellence as practiced by humanity, I sought to rejoin my company and regiment. One of the remarkable things about Stanley's honesty in writing is that up to this point in the narrative, I could paint an X on the ground in every chapter, in every passage. But after he got shot, after he got wounded, he starts writing about some other stuff and gets lost. Here we see a tablet on the battlefield denoting the location of Shaver's Arkansas Brigade. That's only a few hundred yards from the one we just saw, but now you see it facing through the woods and beyond the woods. You can see the light in a field beyond, and in the, beyond that fielding, beyond that field is a, is a knoll, and on top of that knoll is a tangled woodland called uh, at the Shiloh battlefield called the Hornet's Nest. The Hornet's Nest is the center of the battlefield, and during the afternoon of uh, about two thirty in the afternoon of April sixth, Shaver's brigade attacked that hornet's nest, and underwent a another terrible, bloody fight. Uh, and they were driven back from that position, and then retreated. That is a story that kind of disappears from Stanley's account at this time. Although Stanley does write as though he's still with his unit, um, he's not. But nevertheless, uh, whatever unit he was with, whatever Confederate unit he fell in with, uh, he is writing accurately, he's just no longer with his Arkansas Brigade. And the things that he describes, they did not see, they retreated after their defeat in the Hornet's Nest. The battlefield maintained the same character of undulating woodland, being in general low ridges, separated by broad depressions, which sunk occasionally into ravines of respectable depth. At various places, wide clearings had been made, and I came across a damp bottom or two covered with shrubs. For a defensive force, there were several positions that were admirable as rallying points, and it was perhaps owing to these and the undoubted courage exhibited by the federal troops that the battle was so protracted. Though our attack had been a surprise, it was certain that they fought as though they resolved to deny it. And as the ground to be won from the enemy was nearly five miles in depth, and every half mile or so they stood and obstinately contested it, all the honors of the day were not to be ours. Later the enemy were assisted by gunboats which hurled their enormous projectiles far beyond us. But though they made great havoc among the trees and created terror, they did comparatively little damage to those in close touch with the enemy. The screaming of the big shells when they first began to sail over our heads had the effect of reducing our fire, for they were as fascinating as they were distracting. But we became used to them, and our attention was being claimed more in front. Dead bodies, wounded men writhing in avenue, agony, and assuming every distress, distressful attitude, were frequent sights. But what made us heartsick? What made us heartsick was to see now and then the well-groomed charger of an officer with fine saddle and scarlet and yellow-edged cloth, with brass-tipped holsters, or a stray cavalry or artillery horse galloping between the lines. Snorting in terror, while his entrails, soiled with dust, trailed behind him. Our officers had continued to show the same alertness and vigor throughout the day, but as it drew near four o'clock, they began to abate somewhat in their energy. And it was evident that the pluckiest of the men lacked the spontaneity and the ardor that had distinguished them earlier in the day. Several of our company lagged wearily behind, and the remainder showed that by their drawn faces the effects of their efforts. Yet, after a short rest, they were able to make splendid spurts. As for myself, I had only one wish, and that was repose. The long-continued excitement, the quenchless thirst, made more intense by the fumes of sulfurous powder and and the caking of grime on the lips caused by tearing the paper cartridges and a ravening hunger, all combined and reduced me to a walking automaton, and I earnestly wished that night would come and stop all further effort. Finally, about five o'clock, we assaulted and captured a large camp. And after driving the enemy well beyond it, we were ordered to retire to our tents. There we hungrily sought our provisions, and I was lucky in finding a supply of biscuits and a canteen of excellent molasses, which gave great comfort to my friends and myself. The plunder of the camp was abundant. There was bedding, clothing, and accoutrements without stint, but the people were so exhausted that they could do mo- no more than idly turn things over. Night soon fell, and only a few stray shots could now be heard to remind us of the thrilling and horrid din of the day, excepting the huge bombs of the gunboats. By eight o'clock, I was repeating my experiences in the region of dreams indifferent to the columbiads and mortars and the torrential rain which increased the miseries of the wounded and the tentless. This brings us to the end of Private Stanley's narrative of the first day of battle. He did include a second day of battle, but um, I will spare us that particular narration. Nevertheless, I feel I owe you a little bit of uh, what came after, and here we see a portion of the Shiloh National Military Park called Jones Field. It's on the west side of the park, and there you see an oval tablet. At the Shiloh Park, the rectangular tablets denote action that occurred on the first day of the battle. The oval tablets denote action that occurred on the second day of the battle. This red oval tablet shows us the position of Shaver's Arkansas Brigade on the second day of the battle. Thus, here our man fought on the second day of the battle. What happened to Henry Morton Stanley? Well, at In the early morning of the second day of the battle, his brigade advanced to this position. Company E, the Dixie Grays, Captain Smith, were deployed as skirmishers in front of the line. So imagine we are in the line of battle here, the Confederate line of battle, and in the field in front, spread out at six-foot intervals between each other, the skirmishers. Those are Captain Smith's company, among whom is Private Stanley. They advanced into a ravine that is on the other side of that field. Now, in this, our photograph is a little bit deceiving. Those trees over there look like the other side of the field. They are not. That is actually a ravine bisecting the field. And then the field continues on the other side of it, and then those trees are growing up out of the ravine. Into that ravine, uh, Private Stanley and Company E took cover to, to give warning when the federals attacked in the morning and there they did their skirmishing when the confederates uh, when the federals attacked however through a mistake of orders the brigade retreated from their position and left the skirmishers out in the middle of the field the skirmishers had to make a run for it but as private stanley was climbing out of that ravine he heard and i don't have the quote in front of me but i think we can all assume it had something to be sounded something like drop that gun you rebel so-and-so, and And turning, Private Stanley found himself a prisoner of war. The Federals took him prisoner, sent him to the rear, so his next stop was further across the field. His next stop after that was a steamboat in the Tennessee River, and sometime after that he found himself deposited firmly in a cold billet in Camp Douglas on the south side of Chicago. There in Camp Douglas, these Confederate soldiers, as I'm sure a lot of us know, uh, sickened and died through the spring and summer of 1862. And as we know, uh, Private uh, Stanley had already undergone a change of character as a result of his fighting at Shiloh. Now, throughout The post-war years, if you read the Confederate Veteran magazine, something from the uh, uh, United uh, Confederate Veterans publication, you will see men uh, bragging in print or in their letters or to their family for years and years about how... How, how, how devotedly they stood by the Confederate cause and they waited out those three years in Camp Douglas. Well, and, and, and how, why, when the Yankees came to them and gave them a chance to, the word they used was galvanize. In other words, the Federals gave the Confederate prisoners an option, stay here or join the Union Army. Well, so many of these confederate, proud Confederate veterans could tell their grandchildren years and years later, I stood it out, I stayed there in Camp Douglas. But, as we may already suspect from the narrative, when the Yankees offered a chance to galvanize, Henry Morton Stanley
0: <laughs>
1: joined the Union Army joined the Union Army, joined a battery of artillery. A few months later he found himself uh, in Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Uh, might have been Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. By then, I don't know whether it was before or after the first of January, eighteen sixty-three. But found himself in Harper's Ferry. He became sick. He never uh, he never engaged in a battle for the Union against the uh, Confederate Army. He became sick and was sent to the rear. And there, uh, he got sicker and sicker. and And several months later, uh, uh, according to his apprehension of the reality of the situation, he was given a. Uh, uh, a medical discharge from the Union Army. Like I said, this simply reflected his impression of the situation. The Union Army did not share his opinion that he had been medically discharged, and so Henry Morton Stanley is carried on the rolls as a deserter from the Union Army and as a deserter from the Confederate Army. <laughs> well, in what can only be considered one of the greatest decisions of American government bureaucracy. Shortly after that, he joined the Union Navy and they made him a paymaster,
0: <laughs>
1: gave him the keys to the pay box. It makes for a good joke, but actually his service as a paymaster was honorable. He was never suspected of doing anything, anything, and, uh, and he spent the last part of the war honorably serving in the Union Navy as a paymaster. I don't think he knew they thought he was a deserter until years, himself, years later himself. Um, But then the war ended, he became a journalist in New York, he wrote for some New York papers, he returned to Britain, uh, wrote for some papers there, he went to Africa, did something, I don't know. (laughs) Not part of this story. But after all of that, he sat down and he wrote his autobiography. Here we have our man in his later years, at the the prime of life, I guess, after Shiloh, after Livingston, writing his memoirs. And the memoirs are, the autobiography is remarkable. It is remarkable for a couple of reasons. Um, Much of what he writes is not true. But much of the other stuff that he writes is more true than you can believe. As I said from our narrative here, uh, just the Shiloh stuff, it can be traced. I can I can put him on the ground right up to a certain point. Then the Yankees break his belt buckle and the rest makes no sense, which starts, makes you suspicious as a historian. Um, he's talking about stuff that happened that I know could not have happened to him at this time. But the honesty that we get from this text is something that you will not find in the most reliable of primary source letters and diaries from the war. If, what, if the answer you want to find is where was this regiment when they shot that regiment, some, some of these sources are very good on that. But it's going to be very difficult to find any writer other than Stanley or maybe Bierce that will tell you what is going on in the head of a young soldier in those terrible moments of battle, and then especially in Stanley what is going on in the heart and the soul of a young soldier in his first combat. And then finally, very few documents are going to be so honest As to tell you, that experience changed me, and it changed me for the worse. I am not the sweet kid that went to Shiloh and joined the army because I was afraid that girls wouldn't like me. In fact, I became something much darker and crueler. And that is an admission about much of the life of this man. Because if we dig into him, there's some. It's not just Stanley and Livingston. He was a rough guy, he hurt a lot of people. John Rowlands, bastard. And he kind of tells us in his story of Shiloh how that came to be. So, thank you very much for visiting Shiloh. If we have time, I'll entertain questions. If we're out of time and we want to hit the bar, we can do that.
0: we have time, questions. Yeah. Over here, Bill. Did, uh, you may have mentioned this, but were his recollections of that first day at trial? Was that written temporarily, like that evening, or did he wait until later when he wrote his whole autobiography to, to,
1: to right. Portland? Right. Good question. Uh, Was was the writing contemporaneous to the battle? The answer is no. This all came from the autobiography and he wrote the autobiography in his retirement. Uh, In fact, he died before publishing the autobiography. His wife edited his writings into the autobiography and published them. I think he wrote this around maybe 1904, 1906, a good 40 years after, making the stuff that he's right about kind of impressive that he remembered it right, and then making it a little more understanding, some of the stuff that was, you know, he's, it's memory, you know. Over here, David. If he
0: was the ruthless man of Japan, I'd have no doubt that he was. Yeah. What kind of a husband
1: was he? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Uh, last night in Milwaukee, somebody put up their hand and asked me to, to talk about Welsh workhouses <laughs> because it had appeared in, and I had, I'll, I'll tell you the same thing I told them. I don't know. It doesn't have to do with Shiloh. Uh, I, I can tell you that his wife was willing to put his writings together and do a lot of work to publish them later. Uh, but no, I don't know anything about the domestic history of the Stanleys. Sorry about that.
0: Yeah. Is his autobiography available? It is.
1: The autobiography is available. I believe it's probably in print. Um, but, I mean, if you want to get a first edition, it was published in 1910. It's a two-volume set, and it tells the whole story from his point of view. Uh, I, I'm told by uh, someone in the room tonight who's, who's read a lot about it that uh, his story of that African adventure uh, has maybe a few holes <laughs> in it. <laughs> Over here. Yeah, I
0: was going to ask you, uh, were there others at uh, battle with them yeah. who could substantiate uh, what he wrote about and uh, support the uh, facts that he presented?
1: Right. The uh, question is, were there other first hand resources that could substantiate what Stanley wrote about? Um, there were none in the w- there aren't too many in the way of post war writings or letters or diaries that are as fulsome. As his. But there are some line of day diaries from Sixth Arkansas, and there are official reports, both of the brigade commander, the division commander, and the and the regimental commander. No, there's not a regimental report, but the brigade commander and the and those can be used to trace the regiment across the Shiloh battlefield, and up to that point where he got shot, uh, they align very carefully with what he's talking about, including attacking in the dawn and then attacking two different camps and stopping after the first one and attacking the second. That stuff, you could walk to those places on Shiloh Battlefield today and say this is where that happened. Uh,
0: were, were you able to find anybody who made uh, any comments about Stanley?
1: Uh, 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 Confederate Veteran Magazine, yeah. Uh, especially when this came out in 1904. There's a lot of editorial reply to the Confederate veteran magazine the that's the official magazine the official publication of Confederate Veterans and it is uniformly negative uh, they saw Confederate survivors saw him as a deserter uh, and so whatever he had to write about Shiloh or anything else they didn't want to hear it uh, he was a deserter uh, several points. Here
0: at the Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. How how does the timeline work out? I think uh, I think he is writing in 1904 when he can refer to history and say this happened at 10 o'clock and this happened at 9:30. Uh, I think on the day of the battle, he probably, like other soldiers, had only a vague idea. Of what time it was at any particular time, but he definitely wrote in 1904. After all, he he uh, he compares the sound of artillery to the sound of a herd of lions. Did he know what a herd of lions sounded like when he was 20 years old and had only been to Wales, New Orleans, and Arkansas in his life? No. So he is he's definitely writing in 1904, and he's consulting. Uh, I, I'm sure he's consulting history.
0: Did, did, he ever, uh, did he ever get back to his unit that first day?
1: He never did. So he,
0: just like so many others, they all
1: wound up with other, other units. Right, right. Uh, well, no, he got back to his unit after the first day. After he was captured, he never went south. He, he was never again in Arkansas. He never met any of those people again. He just let that part of it. And, th- and you see that throughout his life, um, although he does have a family, and all the rest. He's always leaving leaving people behind, leaving experiences by just walking walking into the woods, walking into the forest. Uh, but no, he never, ever went back south, never saw any of those people again. All the way back?
0: This is more of an odd question, but now that we're looking at families, different, mm-hmm. especially Shiloh, which great right? first battle of America. Are we looking at staff rides to determine where these units really were? Or are we just taking people's word for mm-hmm. How are we looking at this battle
1: to be about? Right, right. The, the question is it, 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 tell me if I'm wrong, but the question is how is the, the history to the of the battle Changing, right, right, um, and uh, the answer is uh, historians are always questioning the received story. Um, one thing, uh, like as far as staff rides are concerned, one thing about the formation and the original interpretation of the Shiloh National Military Park—that is nineteen—that is the year eighteen ninety four when Congress. Founded it up until about 1918, when the first historian of the park, David W. Reed, retired from his job. During that period, the initial interpretation of the battlefield, when veterans were available, um, the history work is remarkable for its uncompromising accuracy. It still holds up. If you're asking where were they when this happened, those tablets are right. Now, what we need to consider in the 21st century is the things that David W. Reed didn't care about, such as how the battle developed, the decisions that sent soldiers here and there, The issues of, especially in the Union Army, but in both armies, the issues of courage and cowardice. Which regiments ran and which regiments stood. Because those tablets are not going to tell you these Colonel Appler shouted retreat and save yourselves and these guys ran away. (laughs) Not on their monument to the 53rd Ohio in Ray Field. Um, so, So you see, those are the doors that need to be opened. Those are the stories that still need to be told. But what is remarkable about the period of David W. Reed is his mania for accuracy. If there's a tablet in that ground, it happened. What is on that tablet is accurate, which brings open one other unopened door. There are lots of places on Shiloh where there was lots of battle, but no tablets.
0: No tablets.
1: Because if Reed didn't know, he didn't put something there. And those are places on the battlefield that are still wide open for interpretation, new history, new research, finding out new stories, even when it comes to placing a regiment at a certain place at a certain time. If he wasn't sure, he didn't say it. Back over here. Uh, In his
0: autobiography, did Stanley write much about uh his time in Camp Douglas and whether
1: he had any dilemma in the side of the uh, He did. He did. And I don't recall... It's not part of this, and I haven't looked at it for a while, but I don't recall him having too much of a moral conundrum <laughs> <laughs> about getting through those gates and out on to MLK Drive and then north to... <laughs> north to Michigan Avenue.
0: <laughs> Bill? <laughs> oh, all together yeah. So all the work you did on this, uh, mm-hmm. the Union Confederates, I would hear Is that is that venue still used for the battlefield tours by the Rangers or the summer? With, you know, people out there, do you have any idea how?
1: I hope so. I hope so. But I mean, it was a student project. Yeah. Um, but the 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 two uh, hikes are available. Um, And uh, actually the easiest way to get them is not through the park, it's through the online journal of the Ambrose Bierce Association. So there's, an Ambro, there's a literary association of fans of Ambrose Bierce, and they asked me to write uh, um, an essay for them, and then they went ahead and uploaded the tours, and you can download them as PDFs, and from there you can take them to the battlefield and, and follow them. And, and probably the battlefield will run you a photocopy of something they have. The, I don't think the rangers do it. One thing is you talked about the summer. During the summer at Shiloh, the programs are 30-minute stationary programs. Uh, You go to the hornet's nest and a a ranger has about 30 minutes to give you the story and then you go to another one somewhere else. These are programs that cover about two or three miles and are going to take you three hours uh, to do. So when they are performed, if you will, given, they're usually given by yours truly, And it's at the anniversary of the battle, April 6th and April 7th uh, of every year. The battlefield has special programs where historians uh, volunteer and they come and they lead you on long form hikes, two hours, two, three hours, two or three miles, down into the ravines, all of those, all those deep, dark, muddy holes that you don't, that the rangers don't let you go into when uh, when it's summertime and they might have to bring a helicopter out to get you out. But yeah, when the when the programs are given, they're usually me.
0: John, <laughs> uh, you know, let me yep. ask you this. We, mm-hmm. we talked about it earlier, yeah, getting back to his question back there. Two questions about the accuracy and determination of where things are. Okay, all right. Uh, Wiley Sword's uh, theory of where uh, uh, Johnston was actually killed uh, actually died north right. of where the marker is, right. And perhaps Stacy's um, Stacy Allen, Stacey the chief Ar- ranger. Yes, yeah. with the with the maps. So, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, there there there
1: is, and there has been, um, uh, controversy over where. General Albert Sidney Johnson, the Confederate commander, died, and uh, the killing of Johnson, the death of Johnson, un- in undoubtedly played an important part in the outcome of the battle. Some people say decisive, some people say, nah, not decisive, but always important uh, to the outcome of the battle. Therefore, where he died and when he died is very important historically, and it's crucially important in the era in the area known as memory, uh, because, I mean, uh, uh, when they when they figured out where they thought he died, they nailed uh, a sign to a tree, just not at where he was, but nearby, and a hundred years later, when that tree was dead and the park wanted to take it away, they had a riot. That's the Johnston tree. That's where, that's where Johnston died. No, nobody even ever said that that's where Johnston died. It's just a tree that had a sign on it once. <laughs> but it became the Johnston tree. I, I, I almost don't want to say it like, like funny because people really believe that and it mattered to them. And history does matter. The stories of history does matter. So uh, Wiley Sword, one of the great historians of the battle, found some really intriguing primary source information that had not previously been consulted. It, uh, primarily among it, a handwritten map. I've
0: got a copy.
1: Yeah, you've got a copy of the handwritten map that appeared in a in a book uh, that no one had ever consulted. It was put, not part of the of the record, and it placed the death site uh, somewhat to the north, and uh, and Mister Sword did an enormous amount of. Uh, Compelling scholarship uh, to say that, yeah you know, he didn't die there. He actually died here, this other place. Now, where the Johnston tree is and where the Johnston mortuary monument is and where the tablet showing, uh, denoting where he died, is in the park is, like anything else that David W. Reed planted in that park, firmly supported by lots of primary source information. And most importantly, for the Reed placement. Uh, which is the m- memorialized placement, uh, he had the eyewitnesses to the death, including Governor Isham Harris of Tennessee, who was a member, a volunteer member of General Johnson's staff, and was with him when he died. And so when when they originally put down those those monuments, Harris was there with Reed, and and Harris said, "Yeah, here's where I found him, and down there in the ravine is where he died." And Reed challenged him. There's writing, there's letters, and Reed challenged. Okay, now are you sure about this? Because there's lots of ravines and there's lots of. He goes, "No, I remember this, and I remember that road, and I remember that house on the other side of the road, which is the widow Bell widow Bell house." Um, So Reed was convinced, based on the memories of Isham Harris, but that were a couple generations old. My conclusion is that the question is an open question, <laughs> and I do not know the answer. But I do know that the late Wiley Sword made a compelling argument uh, that it was elsewhere.
0: The, the the records were of his son-in-law, who was also with him. Yeah, which is where the map was. And 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 while the while according to Wiley, the the written record had been published the maps had never been published in the record. Yeah. And so he found those maps in the in the National Archives.
1: National Archives I think. I, I think and the maps the maps are more contemporaneous than the memory yeah. of Isham Harris.
0: And so uh, we were we were with him one time he took us out and gave us copies of the maps and we walked that place and it's it's it, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyway, besides I think well,
1: just a, a, interesting and almost amusing on the sesquicentennial Mm -hmm. of the battle, which of course was a huge deal, Uh, April 6th and 7th, 2012. Thousands of people were at Shiloh, and Wiley Sword came to the battlefield and led his alternative hike, (laughs) and at 2.30 in the afternoon, and the park was fine with it, Wiley's a great guy, he's a a great historian. So at 2.30 in the afternoon, while the death of Johnston was being commemorated over here, It was also being commemorated (laughs) over here. Well,
0: I've heard there's some debate between whether uh, Jensen caught a musket ball or a canister
1: round. I'm familiar with that debate as well, and uh, Wiley Sword is one of the authorities. I accept his authority on it. It seems to have been a 57 caliber musket ball, they think, and certainly there were some Union soldiers with mini rifles, British uh, Enfield Enfield. rifles firing at him, Um, but it was certainly whatever it was. You know, it just clipped him, and it tore that uh, popliteal popliteal. How do you pronounce it? it? Popliteal. Popliteal. She's a nurse. Oh, okay. Uh, Thank you very much. (laughs) The popliteal artery didn't break it; tore it open so that it didn't, you know, stop bleeding on its own, and he bled out very quickly. Um, But I. I, the accepted story was probably a musket ball, but yeah, I've heard of the of the controversy on that as well. Over here, is anybody still doing like archaeological research on mm-hmm. the battlefield itself? What, Sometimes. One of the
0: reasons I'm asking is the last time I was there, they were talking about you know, the, the Confederates. That burials are all in trenches all over the field, yeah. but the largest trench apparently is blocked.
1: Mm-hmm. A large trench is lost, yeah. Having, being lost, they don't know whether it's the largest one or not. that Is
0: anybody working to try and locate
1: it? Is anyone trying to work to locate that? Um, there, are, there are several Confederate burial trenches that are not marked. And, uh, and I do not know of a currently active archaeological project to find them. Um, yet I'm old school (laughs) I'm one of those historians that says before you start digging up the ground go back to the books go back to the documents go back and yeah we know where some of them are based on the documents and perhaps someday there will be a decision to mark some of those places but at the moment no, at the moment, there's, there's a great deal of concern to maintain the integrity of the original interpretation, and only very infrequently, such as the case of the state of Tennessee or the state of Mississippi, putting up one monument in one agreed-upon place. And only in very uh, uh, uncommon cases does the park get out and actually put a monument uh, to mark something but yeah we, even without doing the archaeology we know where there's a couple and one of them is very near Wiley's uh, placement of the death of of Johnson in the on the east side of Hamburg Savannah Road in that in that field um, and then uh, maybe a little bit out. we know there's a big grave there now we can't put an X on it it's in the field somewhere yeah somewhere but uh, well, we know there's probably 500 or 600 confederates in there. We know there's a lot of confederates that died at uh, the Union Field Hospital, mm-hmm. which is commemorated. And, of course, they were buried. There's a, uh, there's a burial site somewhere Southeast. up there. Yeah. Um, now, the last archaeological work that was done at Shiloh was done in 2004-2005, and it involved the Shiloh Indian Mounds National Monument. And that was pretty remarkable. And that is the first time they ever brought, had the money to bring ground penetrating radar to Shiloh. Now one reason why they would not dig at Shiloh is that there was uh, a superintendent at Shiloh named DeLong Rice many years ago that did dig into the Indian Mounds. And he, it was not pretty. At least not by an archaeologist's archeolo- point. Of- he just dug in there and, oh, this is cool, that's cool. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, and so all that stuff was ruined. All that stuff was ruined on an official dig. Uh, so even now, that the ghost of DeLong Rice and all that damage he did at the Indian Mounds is going to keep very much keep them from digging. But now we have ground-penetrating radar. And it's expensive, but I'm sure it's getting cheaper. When they did the archaeology on the Indian Mounds, The archies, as they're called (laughs) on the park, were very uh, generous in doing spot searches in the park. Uh, So not the whole park and not looking for anything major like a, a, a burial trench. But they wanted to see how the ground penetrating radar would work if they did that. Found some very interesting things. They found some lines of battle because that's where soldiers drop. There, you drop stuff, uh, and so they found specific places that were not marked that we now know were exactly where a line of battle was standing during a particular part of the battle. They went to the largest um, marked Confederate burial trench just, just to double check what they thought they already knew. Um, and usually, uh, I've seen the pictures, usually the ground penetrating radar, or at least at the time, uh, had read. Uh, um, or black meant that it wasn't seeing anything uh, like a body or, 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 or bones, and then red meant that it was getting a hit. And when they went to the Confederate burial trench, that's the major one, the 700, they put it there, and it's just red, <laughs> not a spot of black. And those 700 guys are there. And we know they're there because they said it. They said it at the time. Another reason not just to grab a shovel and start digging up our national parks. Anything else? I get one more. The prisoners, the Confederate prisoners were taken to Camp Douglas. Wasn't there a
0: prison in
1: There were. There were many prisons. And many of the prisoners went to various different places. Camp Douglas was for enlisted soldiers. So privates and sergeants and corporals went to Camp Douglas. And then the, uh, the officers were sent elsewhere. I think the first one was. I'd have to guess at it, but I think it might have been in Iowa. Um, Rock, Island? Rock Island maybe Rock Island. Yeah, Rock Island. but there was a prison at Rock Island. Alton, huh? 1863. 1863. 1863. Uh, I do, what I do know about the Alton Prison was that it, it was a military prison where union malefactors were sent when they did something wrong. Now, if they sent pr- Confederates there too, they they absolutely could. Have. Did they, Rob? Do yeah. you know about that?
0: Uh, Alton Prison was the first Illinois State Penitentiary, which was closed
1: out by Tartia Dix. <laughs> <laughs> it
0: was an unfit. At the beginning of the Civil War, the Army Corps of Engineers said, "Yeah, it's bad, but it's not that bad." bad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they put Confederate prisoners there. Okay. Several hundred, a couple hundred died from smallpox. They're
1: buried in a Confederate cemetery in Alton. Okay. They closed it down after that. Okay. In
0: Butler Camp Douglas were training camps, uses POW camps. Right. Rock Island was built specifically
1: to be a POW prison in Arsenal. Okay. So what we're saying is that the Alton prison was so awful it was closed down and then it was so awful they used it it was too awful for Confederate prisoners, so they closed it down right. and used it for Union.
0: They <laughs> soldiers <laughs> however you pronounce a radio uh street prison
1: yeah. St. uh, across the way in St. Louis, yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, thank I think we're you about done. thank you very much. Always yeah. a pleasure.